0: Lord, we are desiring this morning to place ourselves under your care through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, working through the word of God in the mouth of a chosen messenger. Lord, this is your plan, this is your paradigm. And Lord, we desire that through the preached word this morning that that your people would grow in their understanding of what it means to be more and more like you, that we would be humble and honest enough to see the ways that scripture reveals our sinfulness and places that we need to um, grow in our maturity. And Lord, I ask that as your mouthpiece that you would simply use me to accomplish your purposes. Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us now in Jesus Christ? Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So, the question today I want to begin with is what is worldliness? When I came to faith in Christ, it was in the context of people who genuinely loved the Lord and were seeking to live for Him, but it was also a very legalistic context now looking back. Now, it was well intended legalism. Um, People really did want to grow, they did want to honor the Lord. And worldliness in that context was always defined by what you didn't do and what you avoided. And I'm sure some of you have had similar experiences in your past. Here are some of the things that you didn't do or things that you avoided. You didn't drink alcohol because it was worldly. You didn't dance because that's what the world does. You didn't listen to music that had a drum beat because that's a pagan practice and it's what pagans do. Um, You stay away from fashion trends and contemporary hairstyles because that is considered to be worldly. Now, some of you this morning are sporting a bald look, and the rest of you men, um, uh, some of you with big beards and stuff, that, that was, I mean, you were just beyond the envelope. And... If you spiked your hair and used gel, you were drifting away. Now, friends, this this became an issue when I was in college. Surprisingly, all right? Back in the day, years ago, right? Almost before the world was created, I was in college. And this issue hit the fan and caused division. Let me kind of give some backdrop. Back then... um, those who were Bible-believing Christians were typically identified as fundamentalists. That's a word that has taken on new meaning recently, uh, meaning extremists, right? That's how it's used. But a fundamentalist was simply someone that says, we are holding to the fundamentals of the faith. And based on that definition, all of you in here would fall in the category of fundamentalists, okay? So just understand that. Then you have this this kind of new evangelicalism that was also kind of moving. And it was basically a move away from these fundamental doctrines to say, well, we could do things a little differently. So it was kind of a drift going on there, okay? Today, we don't like to be identified as fundamentalists. Why? Because society just doesn't quite understand what that means. And so evangelical is the word that typically is used, all right? So that's just a backdrop to this whole thing, all right? So when I was in college, um, in a more fundamentalist context, um, it was okay to use like mousse in your hair, if you remember what mousse was, um, or hairspray even. But the moment you put gel in your hair, you had compromised your faith and you were heading toward danger of losing your faith. You've drifted into worldliness. Now, you were no longer a Christ-loving fundamentalist, but had become one of those compromising and worldly evangelicals, okay? And that was, seriously, they they call it, oh, you're an evangelical with all that goop in your hair, right? That's that's how it was was portrayed. And, of course, the evil and compromising evangelicals responded to those who stood against their gel-infested hairdos by saying, you're all demental because you've taken the fun out of fundamentalism, okay? And, and there was divide in a college campus, all right? On the issue of whether or not a guy should wear gel in his hair. As you see, I am still in rebellion today, okay? And I think you can understand that these are just kind of the things that, that as the church has kind of developed over the years that the church struggles. Here's a few more. Back to these list of do's and don'ts and things to avoid. Don't go to movies because they're worldly. Don't practice mixed bathing, which was always a strange kind of expression. Um, I think that meant mixed swimming, but just, anyway, that's a, whole, that's a whole other thing, right? You actually think about what was being said at that point in time. Um, you don't use any other version of the Bible except the King James Version because it was the only unadulterated version of the Bible, and all right, and there's a whole other thing we could say about that. But those are just a few of them. And I, I think it's also important, even as I've mentioned them and we've laughed a little bit, to say that there is an element of truth, wisdom, and discernment in all of these prohibitions. Certainly, alcohol can and is abused and can result in all sorts of conflict. Certainly there are some forms of dance that break the barriers of modesty and turn into sexual, vulgar sexual expressions, I should say. Certainly music is a powerful medium that can nurture your heart to live in rebellion against God and glorify sin. Certainly enjoying a day at the beach can be both a time of great enjoyment as well as relaxation, but it can also be a battle of the heart with all the flesh that is on display. And certainly there are some translations of the Bible that are not accurate or have certain translation bias. So we don't just throw everything out. But usually in that context, it was, here's the line, you don't go across it. But the problem with that kind of legalistic thinking is that it created a culture of Christianity that simply saw worldliness as a thing out there. Here are the lines you must not cross. Here's the boundary of the envelope you must stay within. Here are the godly standards you must maintain. And if you violate any of these Christian culture standards, you've drifted outside of orthodoxy into worldliness. And it's worth noting, as as an aside, it is no wonder that so much of the church has allowed the pendulum to swing in the opposite direction of worldliness... To what you might call antinomianism, where now within the church, blatant sin is either ignored, it's accepted, or it's celebrated. And we're talking about churches that would identify themselves as gospel center churches. This is just, these are just drifts the church goes through, unfortunately. Now, the truth of the matter is that worldliness started in the heart. Before any of those behaviors took place, worldliness is not so much about the behavior as it is about the heart. In fact, you could maintain all those Christian standards and still be in the thick of worldliness, couldn't you? You could read your Bible faithfully, you could pray regularly, you could attend church consistently, and still be in the grip of worldliness. But everything's good. Because I've conformed to my Christian culture standards and people see me now as godly because I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do and I'm not doing the things I'm not supposed to be doing. Everyone's fine. But I'm a rebel in my heart. And what James is wanting to do here is wanting us to to, to remember that it's easy to, to confuse right behavior with genuine heart change. Now, your children can obey you on the outside, but in their hearts, they're nursing seeds of rebellion, right? Don't look at them. And in the same way, God's children can conform to the cultural standards of certain Christian contexts. And in their hearts, they're feasting on and nurturing the wisdom of the world. And it's to this issue that James now speaks. What is worldliness? Well, twice in this passage, he's talked about friendship with the world as a place where Christians can find themselves. He's writing to Christians, remember. He's writing to people he wants to encourage, but he's also encouraging them by showing them where they're missing the boat and how they're falling short. And so friendship with the world comes as a result of allowing the wisdom of the world to take root in our hearts that bears fruit in worldly thinking and behavior. So I kind of drew that out on the chart here. This has only been used in the past few weeks. And you notice there, there's the world's thinking, there's the world's agenda, there's the world's religion, philosophy, and values. All of that is affecting the heart. And when that is affecting the heart and we are not guarding our heart, then that is then what is fashioning and shaping our heart. And from then, that fashioned and shaped heart, we give birth to certain kinds of thinking, behavior, beliefs, actions, whatever you want to call it. And if we just focus on the right side of this picture here and say, this is all I've got to work at, and just make sure those are right, we're missing the boat. Because the real battle for worldliness is not in the behavior but it's in what is taking place in the heart. That's what James is getting at here. That's what he's striving for. So in James 4, 1 through 10, it is a continuation of what he just finished talking about in the previous passage. If you remember, we looked last week at chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, and he was addressing the problem of the wisdom of the world and then the wisdom of God. And he gave us two primary things out of that passage. First, he said... That the good life is the product of heavenly wisdom. You want to live the good life? That comes as a result of allowing the wisdom of God to fashion and shape your heart. Okay? Which then produces right living, good living. That's what he's talking about. Secondly, heavenly wisdom, in order to grow in us, needs an environment of peace, not disorder. You have disorder... It's hard to cultivate these things. But if you have an environment of peace, you're able then to cultivate the kind of wisdom that God wants you to have and allow it to take root in your heart so that it will bear fruit. So, friends, this all comes down to heart. You want to mature in Christ. Yes, your, your behaviors are important, but the place you need to fight the battle is what is affecting your heart and what is your heart. Not only dwelling on, but what is your heart believing to be true? Because that will then naturally bear fruit in attitudes and behaviors and thinking. All right? You guys with me? All right. So now as James presses on in chapter four, he's building on verse 18 to show the antithesis of a life lived in accordance with heavenly wisdom. In other words, a life that's not lived with heavenly wisdom, is a life lived with the world's wisdom. So we have, in this passage, um, ten verses. And and it breaks up pretty much like this. The symptoms of worldliness, the diagnosis of worldliness, and the prescriptions of worldliness. Now, for our purposes this morning, we're going to deal with verses 1 through 5, which include the symptoms and the diagnosis. Next week, we'll look at the prescription. Um, So today, we want to focus on verses 1 through 5, And the emphasis here is the problem of worldliness in the believer. Now, friends, I'm going to say something. And I hope it doesn't shock you. Well, maybe I hope it does, actually. You all battle with worldliness. You all have traces of worldliness in your heart. Even the most spiritual of you, even the most mature of you struggle with this. And there's a battle then to believe what God says or to believe what the world says and having believed one or the other then to live lives or to respond out of that worldly or wise wisdom. And So there's a problem of worldliness in the believer. And James is saying to his, his audience here, listen, I want to show you what this wisdom of the world looks like. And I want to plead with you to make a change. So he's going to give us the symptoms, and he's then going to show us the diagnosis. So he's using medical, kind of a medical kind of paradigm here as he communicates, all right? Now, let's think about the symptoms of worldliness, the symptoms of worldliness. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Here we're... Coming face to face with the root or the cause of worldliness among believers. Now, how does society answer this question, the, the, the first part of verse one there? What causes quarrels and fights among you? Well, the communists would say it's those, it's those capitalists, man. Get rid of them, those capitalists and we can all live happy together in one big commune, right? The socialist says the problem is the rich. That evil 1%, right? Capitalists say, the problem is the ignorant common man who wants to steal my stuff. The idealist says, mom and dad, you're from the older generation, and you have no clue what you're doing. We're the younger generation. We're the empowered generation. We're the the generation of technology. We know what is good. We know what will work. But none of those actually satisfies. The communist gets into power and he does even worse evil than the capitalist, all in the name of progress. The socialist gets into power and puts down the rich only to redistribute the wealth to those who are in power while the common man suffers. It looks far better on paper, friends. When human nature kicks in, it's a different ballgame, isn't it? The capitalist gets in power and seeks to grow his wealth without regard for others. That's a sinful sign of that. I don't care what effect it has on you. I just want to make money. The idealist, once so full of confidence and passion, realizes that, Mom and dad actually knew far more than they actually were willing to acknowledge. And mankind still struggles along, quarreling and fighting, trying to satisfy his own desires and passions. But James is not looking at society, is he? He's not looking at politics. He's not looking at earthly kingdoms. He's giving his counsel to the church. To God's chosen people. When God pursued you and he drew you to his gospel and you became a follower of Christ, you were baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. You are part of the church universal. And if you're gathered here this morning, you're part of the church local. Universal church is always fleshed out in local context. That's who you are. But he's speaking then to the church. And James is seeking to get to the root of why there is conflict in our relationships. Now, according to James, there are quarrels and fights that mark the people of God. Quarrels are speaking basically of a general atmosphere of conflict. We might call it bad blood between people. Whereas fights are the individual encounters in that big conflict. And of course, in my mind, as I read that, I go to you know, the, the, the famous feuds in our American folklore between the Hatfields and the McCoys. You may be aware of it, but it happened at the end of the Civil War on the border between Kentucky and West Virginia, and it lasted just under 30 years. But it has, you know, when you talk about feuds, that's who comes up in American folklore. And it didn't have to be. It didn't have to continue. But what happens with a feud is that no one wants to give in. People just want to fight. So not everyone, even the the new family members who were born into this thing, who, who weren't around even when the conflict began, they're born into this context and this atmosphere of conflict. Now, we can be so guilty of carrying on feuds without resolve to live in an atmosphere of conflict and to be the agents of fights of various kinds. And this is what happens when we're irritated. This is what happens when we're angry, when we are impatient. We say to ourselves things like, if, the circ- if this circumstance wasn't in my life, if this person wasn't in my life or person's, If they didn't do that, if they hadn't said that, then I wouldn't respond this way. James has already identified passions in the heart of those who are under the bondage of worldly wisdom. If you remember, he talks about bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It's verse 13 of chapter 3. You see, friends, our lives are not conflict-free, are they? Play a little game here. Don't raise your hand. Who here has a marriage that is completely free from irritation, impatience, anger, and conflict? If you raise your hand, we're all going to slap you silly. <laughs> and that will be a righteous discipline for you. Okay? Are your friendships conflict-free? Is your parenting without conflict? Is gateway, because we're so pure and passionate about the gospel, free of conflict? Is there conflict in your neighborhood or with your neighbors? Is there lasting peace in this world? Haven't you just walked out one day and just said, what a great peace we have? We live in a country that's so full of peace. No. I mean, the answer to all those questions is no, 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 no. There's always going to be conflict, even in the best situations. Why? Because sinful man is involved. And sinful man is affected by the wisdom of the world, and his heart is affected by his own desires in conjunction with the wisdom of the world. And so ultimately, he does what he wants to do. And so James asks the question, but he also gives the answer, and it's a shock to the system. It isn't what people are actually expecting. He's saying that the root of the problem that you're facing, is this cause of all this conflict isn't out there. He says, it's within all of us. It's among us. You have been invaded by an alien army which is always campaigning within your heart. This is what the wisdom of the world does. It invades your heart. You drop the guard, it invades and it sets up shop. And it doesn't want to move out. And it gets comfortable. And quite frankly, you get comfortable with it. Worldly wisdom has just come and he's occupying now. Now modern psychology will point to both the external stimuli that we struggle with as well as the internal issues. It will say that the problem is society. The problem is environment, or your parents, or your church, or your school. And certainly all those external stimuli have an effect on our upbringing and our thought processes and things, but they are not the root of our problems, not according to Scripture. And then modern psychology might turn to look within, that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing, that's where we want to go, but ultimately it falls short because it legitimizes what James says is the real problem. What does he say is the real problem? Your passions, your desires. So James says the problem is your selfish desires, your passions, your pleasures. Modern psychology says things like this. You need to follow your dreams, to follow your heart, to follow your passions. All right? Don't Don't squelch those passions. That's the worst thing you can do. You've been given these passions. Don't let anyone stop you from being you. What does being you mean? I mean, if you're mean and nasty and angry, and you're sitting with Dr. Phil, is he going to say, you know, your problem is you just need to be you, and the person is being me. As people say, you know, they do something out of character, that really wasn't me. I just want to know who it was. It was you. But this is, how, this is how, how the world today, how modern psychology then seeks to wrestle with these things. They say, well, you know, I behave that way, but that was, wasn't the real me. Well, then if it wasn't the real you, get rid of that other you. But the problem is that is the real you. And this is where scripture says you need to see this other you that you do not want to recognize as you as actually being you. So Scripture's taking you there. Modern psychology says don't let anyone get in your way of reaching your dreams. You need to look after number one. You need to think about yourself. You are what matters most. So seek yourself. Affirm yourself. Actualize yourself. Pamper yourself. That's where happiness and satisfaction come from. But what James is saying is this. When your personal desires for fulfillment and satisfaction take precedent over your loyalty to God and love for the brethren, it is war. Let me say that again. When your personal desires for fulfillment and satisfaction take precedent over your loyalty to God and your love for the brethren, it is war. Now, that's the root of worldliness. And we must recognize it, friends. We all have that problem. Now, the goal is to have less of that problem. And to replace the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God that's now fashioning and taking over areas in our heart and recapturing them, so to speak, for godly thinking and godly living. Now, notice the evidence that he gives next, the evidence of worldliness among believers. John Calvin says the following troubling words, the heart of sinful man is an idol factory. In other words, what he's saying is when your heart is intent on satisfying its sinful and selfish pleasures, it will make the satisfying of its sinful, selfish pleasures an idol to be worshipped. Now, that image might be difficult to grasp. So to put it a little differently, a desire for even a good thing becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing. Right? A desire for even a good thing becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing. So good things can become idols when those good things consume and rule our hearts. Let me give you a couple of examples. You quest to make money. I think everyone does. It's a good thing. It's a natural thing. But it can also become an idol when it rules your heart. All right? You might desire for your children to honor and respect you. It's a good thing that can become an idol when it rules your heart. And when it's an idol, you will be willing to sin to get what you want. You are going to respect me! And if you don't respect me, I'm going to teach you to respect me. I know some of you have said stuff like that in here. Not because I heard you but because I is one of you. And rather than allow our sinfulness then to take control, we've allowed something good to turn into an idol. Here's another one. Your quest to work hard and to get that promotion is a good thing. But it can become an idol when it rules your heart, right? And you're willing to do sinful things even at work. Or neglecting your family at home in order to get what your passions desire. Good things that end up ruling your heart become bad things. They're ruling things. And this is what was happening with the church. This is where James is taking us. So he first of all, notice in verse 2, he says, You desire and do not have. You ever desired something? You know, i 'm going to go to the store I'm going to get this. you know maybe you like I love avocados. I don't like avocados. I don't mind them a little bit here and there, but all right, you love avocados, so you're going to the store,, ah, I have a hankering for avocado. You go to the store. where are the avocados, and you're like, oh, there's no, they're all gone. Yeah. Am I speaking about someone here all right, all right <laughs> And you just go like, all ah, right, and the the blood boils over. Because what you desire, what you were longing for, isn't there. And as a result, you sin in some way. All right? This is what he's saying. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Here's the first thing we need to notice here. The hardest, oh, we mentioned that. Worldliness affects your relationship with others. So when this happens, we no longer see people as created in the image of God, when you're at the grocery store and there's no avocados, you're looking for a worker and you're saying, where are the avocados? You See, where does that come from? Your happy, cheerful nature? What changed? Something that was ruling your heart now is bearing fruit in anger because you can't get what you desired. And so you're willing to treat someone who has no clue about avocados in a very horrible way. So we, treat, we, we no longer treat people as, as if they're created in the image of God or as people who should be treated with respect and dignity, but as vehicles for getting what we want or obstacles we must subdue, even to the point of murder. I think the idea here is that it's the murder in the heart. Now, it could be actual murder, but I think the idea, practically speaking, I don't think James is writing to churches where people are going through and slicing each other up. I think there's a heart attitude And hatred for someone is murder of the heart, right? So you're willing to go there simply because you desired something and you couldn't get it. I mean, this is is basic stuff, friends, isn't it? So worldliness affects your relationship with others, right? Desire unchecked leads to murder, and then coveting unchecked leads to frustration and further conflict. It says you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. When this happens, we only see people as agents to deliver our desires. And if we're frustrated and aren't getting what we want, we are willing to fight, to quarrel, to go to war, either to remove them out of the way or to give them a half Nelson to force them to do what we want them to do so that our, satis- our desires can be satisfied. And I'm just saying we do that in all sorts of different ways. It can be manipulation. It be- could be like a, a backhanded you know, uh, insult. It-, it can happen in a variety of different ways. And when we see what is really going on in our hearts, we're, we're fooling ourselves if we try to blame it on something else. Oh, that behavior was the environment. So the reason I was behaving bad in the grocery store is because the heat is just, just too hot in here. And so I just—I was free and just getting angry. You, know, you made me angry. Ah, you may have provoked, but your heart is actually producing that anger. So you're quarreling, you're fighting, and acts of murder cannot be blamed on your parents who raised you, where you grew up. The fact that you were mistreated at school. The fact that you came from a low-income family. That your parents divorced. That you are an Enneagram. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, or eight. If you have no idea what that is, good. Friends, we must remember what is going on here. James is writing his letter to brothers and sisters in Christ who have been regenerated by the word of truth and are now called to live a life that reflects that reality and friends, because of the gospel, you are new creatures created in Christ Jesus. You have a new master. You have a new loyalty. You have a new set of passions that are not the kind of things that come out of the world. They come out of heavenly wisdom. So you and I are called to live our life not like the world but distinct from the world. We're called to live our lives pursuing maturity in Christ and allowing our sinful passions To flow out of worldly wisdom, to take root in our heart, will destroy our relationships. That's what he's saying here. So the evidence of worldliness among believers, first of all, is worldliness affects your relationship with others. But then he goes on, and he just reinforces that worldliness affects your relationship with God. And he proves that by talking about the subject of prayer. So when worldliness takes root... First of all, we stop believing that satisfaction is found in God. So we stop coming to Him in prayer. You do not have because you do not ask. Well, you're God's children. How many of you have had children who do not ask for things? Can I have a cookie? Right? Can I have a gummy bear? They're constantly asking for stuff. It's part of being a child. You're depending on the parent, or in this case, the biblical paradigm here, you're dependent on the father. So we've been overrun with the wisdom of the world that we no longer believe that our satisfaction can only be found in Christ. So we need true wisdom, and that true wisdom can only be found in Christ. And when we're facing a trial, we are only consumed with our safety, comfort, and desires being met And we have no room for God and his work in and through our lives. This is where we're left. We don't think that God can help, so we don't ask. Secondly, we come to God only to ask that he will satisfy our sinful and selfish passions. This is what he says in verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You get that? So the only reason they're coming to ask anything is not because they actually want to honor God. They're coming to God because they want to use him to satisfy their own passions. So we reduce God to our heavenly genie that we can rub with our words of prayer so that we will, he will do our bidding and bring about what we desire without regard for what he wants or desires for us, or even worse, with clear knowledge of what he desires and wants. Now, friends, we get convinced by the world's wisdom that our Honda Fit isn't cool enough. It's not fast enough. It's not strong enough. It's not large enough. It's not economic enough. I don't understand that one, but that's the reality. And so we begin to look, and we we kind of figure, oh, maybe... Maybe what I need is a BMW or a Mercedes, or, or maybe I need, I need a Cadillac. It's bigger, it's newer, it's faster, it's stronger, it has more efficiency. So we come to God in prayer asking that he would make it clear to us which one of these, you know, Mercedes, BMW, blah, 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 we should get. And we ask him to give us a good price, a good relationship with the dealer. We ask that they'll include some extras to kind of give us an indication, oh, this is the one that you want, We can just imagine what people are going to think of us driving down the road in this new car. And the truth is that God thinks your Honda Fit is just fine. You know what I'm talking about, right? We all wrestle with this kind of stuff. And he knows that you're just being ruled by sinful passions and not God-fearing pursuits. I mean, we see this in commercials all the time, right? I mean... How many revisions of Tide have there been through the years? Bigger, better, bolder, faster, cleaner, smellier, whatever, right? That's the lure they put out to you. Oh, the old one that we used to sell you that you were perfectly satisfied in buying isn't good enough now, because now we have this new and improved. You drive by some place and it says under new management. Again. (laughs) What's it gonna be like this time, right? We're we're, we're duped by these things. And friends, this is how our heart works, where our desires begin and we're drawn away. David Henderson in his book Culture Shift writes this. We have tended to turn the Christian faith into a relationship through Christ with a uh, with a God who is the divine vending machine in the sky, there to meet our every need. Unhappy, unattractive, unsuccessful, unmarried, unfulfilled. Come to Christ and he will give you everything you ask for. We forget, hear this, that God is not primarily in the business of meeting needs. And when we make him out to be, we squeeze him out of his rightful place at the center of our lives and we put ourselves in his place. God is in the business of being God. Christianity cannot be reduced to meeting people's needs. And when we attempt to do so, we invariably distort the heart of the Christian message. I mean, that just cuts right through American culture, doesn't it? And much of American Christian culture. God is more concerned about being God and being glorified as God and that you making sure that he's in the center of your life. He is less concerned about those less important things. Friends, the question you must ask at this point is this. Whose kingdom is shaping your relationships? Which kingdom is driving your heart? What kind of passions are you chasing after? David the psalmist gives great counsel when he says, Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I know you've seen it before. You've probably read it, or you've probably heard it before. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, some people love this, because people want their desires to be rubber-stamped by God. God's going to give me my desires? This is great. I'll delight him, in if that's what it takes. The problem is, that's not the point of the verse. The point of the verse is, when you delight in God... Your desires actually change because your desires become God's desires, or God's desires become your desires. And when that change takes place, He is more than happy to say, Here you go. So take a verse like that, dwell on it, let it feed your soul, but recognize that God is putting you through a process. Delight yourself. In the Lord, and He will give you the desires that He has fashioned and shaped in your heart to actually be produced by your heart. So, when you truly delight in Him, you'll be fashioned and shaped by His desires. Now, friends, this is important. When we delight in God, we have a passion to know Him through His Word. When we delight in God, we have a passion to praise Him through joyful worship. We long to be under the preaching of the Word, not because of the person preaching, but because we know that that is the means by which God directs us and shapes us and helps us see things that maybe we wouldn't normally see. We look for His hand at work in our lives and in the lives of others when we delight in Him, and we would delight in Him. He is slowly and steadily changing our hearts and implanting new passions. He is granting us knowledge, insight, and wisdom into how his kingdom works and what might be going on in your circumstances. And that's why James says, James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, what? Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, these are the symptoms that James identifies Or uses to help describe the wisdom of the world that has affected our heart. Now let's look at the diagnosis. Now you think that James has been hard hitting. He has just started in this text. What's the diagnosis here? Verse 4 You adulterous people! I don't know if you have been called that before many times. What is adultery? It's when I give to one person the love that I have promised to another person. So, that, I mean, the idea of adultery can be applied in a number of different ways. When I give to one person the love that I have promised to another person, when we allow the wisdom of the world to rule our hearts, when the wisdom of God is readily available to us, we are committing spiritual adultery. To put it differently, sinful human conflict is rooted in spiritual adultery. Our problem with one another is not first that we don't love one another enough. Our problem is first that we don't love God enough. When James calls his readers adulterous people, that is supposed to shock them. Now remember, most of his readers were Jews. So certainly Gentiles that were part of the churches, but most of them were Jews. That's how he describes them in the beginning of his book. And so for him to mention this idea of being adulterous people and you are a Jew hearing that, that is taking you back to the scriptures in the Old Testament. And reminding you of how God explained and portrayed his relationship with his people. They were an adulterous people. They were his chosen people. He had brought them out. He had had claimed them. He had established them. He had raised them up, but they turned their backs on him. They refused to listen to him. He loves them with the steadfast love, but they refused to turn to him. That is until they suffered the fruit of their ways, either with bondage and slavery or God's judgment. When we move to the New Testament, Paul describes the church as the bride of Christ. We belong to him. We are betrothed to him. He loves us, and we say that we love him. So this is spiritual adultery, when we abandon that relationship and give our love somewhere else. Secondly, not only are you committing spiritual adultery, but you have become an enemy of God. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Again, remember, he's speaking to the church. So these are people that are genuine believers who now, by virtue of their embrace of worldly wisdom, are living in such a way that they are Demonstrating their enmity or the fact that God is their enemy. When you've been unfaithful to God, you become his enemy. He's saying, when a man is in the midst of a physical relationship with a woman other than his wife, is he not at that moment an enemy of that marriage and an enemy of the welfare of his wife? And anytime I choose. To demand my will and my way in the way that I want it, at the time that I want it, in the manner that I want it. At that moment, at that moment, I stand as an enemy to the purposes of the kingdom of God. I'm showing my allegiance to another kingdom and have committed spiritual adultery. Now friends, this this is not about the person on the other side of the room. We all do this. We all act and think and speak in ways that betray our allegiance to the kingdom of God. Why? Because the wisdom of the world gets in, and it has its way. And it pops up every now and then. We're like, whoa, where did that come from? It may have come from the fact that you've been dwelling on that. It's been part of what you've been feasting on in your heart. Now notice what James is saying. He's saying, don't you know? (laughs) And of course, this is a rhetorical question. So the answer is, yes, they do know. He's saying, you already know this. You got this. You understand this. And friends, this is one of the hardest words we get from one of the apostles, isn't it? If you run after worldliness, you're showing that you're an enemy of God. And if you're running after worldliness, you are committing spiritual adultery. You are being unfaithful, to the one who's been faithful to you. That's a hard slap in the face of God. And so James has no problem slapping the faces of his readers by his words. And friends, many times the word of God gently nudges us, other times it lovingly guides us, and sometimes it slaps us silly. And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, Wake up, smell the coffee. You're living in an adulterous life. We need to take it seriously. Committing spiritual adultery, you've become an enemy of God, and then you are giving into your flesh. Verse 5 Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit? that has made, he has made to dwell in us. Now, this is a confusing verse to translate. One will be tempted to look all over the Old Testament for this quotation, and you will hunt in vain. It's not there. It is, however, a summary of what the Scriptures teach. And that seems to be how James is speaking about it here. Now, biblical scholars seeking to carefully translate the second part of this verse... Um, don't agree. There's actually two schools of thought, and I think both of them have some significant points for us. The first group says the Spirit, and they take the Spirit as a reference to the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you have a New American translation, the word Spirit is actually capitalized, so they've actually interpreted for you. And in this case, the interpretation is that the Holy Spirit whom God has made to dwell in you, yearns jealousy. He yearns jealousy for your loyalty, for your obedience, for your passion, for, your, for you to find satisfaction in God. That's one interpretation. The other interpretation is that this, this word spirit is a reference to the human spirit. And in this case, the interpretation is that your fleshly spirit that God has made to dwell in us is jealous to have its sinful passions and pleasures realized. Right? He wants what he wants when he wants it and how he wants it. He demands to be satisfied and will not stop until he has achieved his goal. So which interpretation is right? Before I answer at least where I would land on this, let me just say a couple of caveats. Number one: first thing we need to note is this. That both interpretations are taught in other places in the Bible. So, both options are orthodox and consistent with the rest of Scripture. That's helpful, isn't it? Right? Secondly, the context and the fact that James only uses the word spirit in one other place in his letter, and it's not a reference to the Holy Spirit, leads me to think that James has the latter interpretation in view. And with this relationship of what's going on in the heart, and this makes sense. In fact, let's, let's read James 2, 26 and see how he's using it. The body, apart from the spirit, is dead. He's talking about this there's two, there's, there's two parts to, to, to man. There's a body and there's a spirit. That's, that's how he's understanding this word. And so when he's talking about the spirit, there's this spirit in us then that is at war. And we carry with us our sin, this, this burden that is not going to be released until we enter into glory. And it's that particular presence in our spirit that is, that is at work seeking his desires to be satisfied. That seems to be what James is saying, that, you're, that you are living proof of the truthfulness of Scripture, which truly teaches that the natural man has a spirit of jealousy, your flesh. Let's consider a few passages, right? And we'll go back to the Old Testament here, in particular in Genesis. Genesis 4, verse 7. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You see this? Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. These are heart issues. This is is what was residing in man. Genesis 8, 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. All right, Proverbs 21:10. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes. Finally, Jeremiah 17:9, which you probably all know. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now certainly when, when we come to Christ, we are, we are made new creatures, but the reality is the habits of the world that we once lived in still linger with us. So for example, when I, when I came to Christ, I was 16 years old, loved to play soccer, but I was, a, you know, I was an angry soccer player. Um, I would yell at people when they took the ball away from me, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I became a Christian. It was a glorious thing. I still played soccer. And it was God, through playing soccer, that revealed to me I have an anger problem. And he started to slowly whittle it away. But that was a habit that I brought into my Christian life. You see that? So becoming a new believer in Christ doesn't mean that That, you know, all my struggles are gone now. And sometimes we present the gospel falsely by saying, if you just embrace Christ as your Savior, all your problems will be solved. No, you'll still have struggles. That's why we have what's called progressive sanctification. We're putting off old man habits, being renewed in the spirit of our mind, putting on new man habits, which are the righteousness of Christ. Okay? So we need to recognize then this, 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 this... The spirit in us is is jealous to be satisfied. This goes along with what he said in the earlier part of our text. So, friends, we we are we are in danger. James is saying, wake up, see this. I want you to see the danger of how the wisdom of the world affects the heart. And how when that heart is not guarded and the wisdom of the world has its place, it will produce bad fruit. And that fruit will be a reflection of the wisdom of the world. And that behavior is a behavior that shows your unfaithfulness to the God who redeemed you. As he said in other passages, chapter 3, this ought not to be. This is the challenge so far. This is the diagnosis. You have these symptoms. This is what you are. Now, briefly look at verse 6. What does it say? Someone tell me what it says. First part. He gives more grace. James is now going to turn a corner. That's what we're going to look at next week. He doesn't leave it there, does he? He then begins to instruct those who have been struggling here with this worldly wisdom to say, now what do you do? Well, he says, hold on, i got some good news for you. <laughs> he gives grace. <laughs> and quite frankly, I didn't want to race through those verses because those are so rich and important for us. I want to take more time, and we'll do that next week. But I want to I leave you with that hope that God is not done speaking through James to us. But the front end here is, friends, we need to take this seriously. And so today, I, I, would, I would like to, to finish by just drawing your attention, first of all, to some things that are in this text that have already been mentioned, um, but I think are helpful for us to dwell on just a little bit more or consider personally. Let me just summarize the text so far. Verses 1 through 3, our conflict is driven by our sinful pleasures. Verses 4 through 5, our pleasures are driven by our idolatry, idolatrous hearts. Next week, our pleasures and idolatry can be remedied by the grace of God. Now, you may have heard of the Loch Ness Monster. Have you ever heard of that before? Right? It's in Loch Ness, which is in Scotland, and it's... Apparently a a monster that people have seen, but there's always people trying to find the monster, but people have, you know, taken fuzzy pictures and things like that. They've claimed for it to be there, but there's no real proof. Now, as we close our time here, I would like for us to consider three Ness monsters that are swimming about in the text. And these Ness monsters are monsters that we need to pay attention to because they will reveal the struggle that is in our hearts. All right? First of all, quarrelsomeness. See what I did there, didn't you? Quarrelsomeness. Hear this. I'll give you time to settle down a little bit after that, all right? You can't advance the cause of Christ in your home, at work, at church, if you are a quarrelsome person. You hear that? You are not advancing the cause of Christ. Your bent toward being quarrelsome is an indication that you still are driven by sinful passions which need to be uprooted by seeing God as sovereign over your life and loving the brethren. In fact, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35 says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's create scripture here. By your quarreling, everyone knows you're not really serious about the kingdom of God. That's hard hitting, isn't it? And some in this room have trouble with quarreling. And, and, and sometimes that quarreling can take in places that other people don't even know about it. Secondly, prayerlessness. Prayerlessness is a clear proof that you are not living your life dependent on Him. You've replaced God with yourself or satisfaction in something else. James wants you to wake up out of your sinful slumber and call you to rekindle your fellowship and communion with God. Maturity in Christ cannot be achieved without a steady diet of prayer. Prayerlessness is like treating your wife as if she doesn't exist. You're happy that she is there to wash your clothes, to cook your dinner, to meet your needs... But you never talked to her. And according to James, it's gone even further than that. You have abandoned her for someone else. Just a way to think about it. How are you doing with your prayer life? Do you even pray? And friends, unfortunately... That is a statement or a question that I have to ask because I think there are many people that just don't. Maybe at dinner. Maybe when the kids are around. that'll be a good example to them, right? But we're not praying. It's a litmus test. It's a window into where you are. Of course, the last one is Worldliness. Worldliness. Your passions, your dreams, your thoughts and actions are rooted in the thinking that governs this world rather than in Christ. Friends, hear this. God comes and he takes you and he bathes you in his blood. He regenerates you. He he calls you into his family. You are now given this, this wonderful status in the family as an heir You have all these privileges given to you, and you say, eh, I think I'm going to go over there with your enemies, God. I'm going to, I value what they think. I value what they value. Their philosophy makes a lot of sense. And God's like, are you taking time to find out what my philosophy is? to understand how how I have blessed you and I have given you so much. I mean, James could have ended it right there and said, nuts to you guys, God doesn't care about you. But he doesn't. I think part of the reason he doesn't is because just like the other things that he's talked about here, whether it be the tongue, whether it be partiality, whether it be the kind of fruit that you're bearing, he recognizes that we all struggle with this. And so if you see, you know what, my, my prayer is, is, is lacking. My tendency is to value what's on Facebook or Fox News or CNN. And, oh, they said this, and they said that, and oh, don't you know this is going to happen. It's like, whoa, 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 stop. I know there's a place for all that. But what's more important is God. And what's more important is what he says. And what's more important is what's happening in his kingdom and what he is doing. You think what's happening in our country and in this world is going to shake God? Absolutely not. And we need to remind ourselves of that. God God is up in his throne completely satisfied, completely in control. Friends, let me encourage you. Ponder these things in your heart with the anticipation of God's grace being ministered to your soul if you're willing to receive it. Lord, would you help us today? We are a people who are affected by the sin of the world in which we live. As Isaiah said, I have unclean lips and I live among people who have unclean lips. And Lord, living in the world, which is where you want us to live, Comes with its consequences that we can be affected by that world. But you want us to see what is truly worldly in our lives and then seek to root that out and to replace it with godly character, thinking, and behavior. So Lord, may our time this morning. Have been an opportunity for us to allow you to wrestle around and poke around in our heart and to stir us up to, to ponder struggles and sins and ways that we've been affected by this world. But Lord, may we not lose sight of the fact that we haven't lost our salvation, that we are in process, and that you've given us grace, and Lord, the, the beautiful prospect of knowing that one day we will be home. With you. Help us to take these things, to receive them, to embrace them, and to grow toward maturity because of them. We ask in your precious name. Amen.